It's going to be a day, isn't it? Amen. Amen. Get rid of this robe of flesh. Amen. Wow, it holds us back, doesn't it? All right, Acts chapter 1, verse 6 is the verse we've been kicking things off with today, uh, with this this last uh, number of weeks. Let's see here. Acts chapter 1, verse 6, as we deal with keys to the Bible, we've been dealing with a number of things, the Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, and we're finishing up the New Testament side of it here today. And so, again, we're going to go ahead and do just a a very brief, um, um, if you will, a very brief summary and kind of go back through what we've uh, we've learned over the last couple weeks. And then we're going to kick off the new stuff here and start working forward again, trying to get through the rest of the New Testament, okay? And so uh, we read in the book of Acts chapter 1, verse 6, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel to Israel? And, uh, of course, we know that uh, that is a very important question that was asked. And, of course, the, the book of Acts, as well as the New Testament, centers around that, that particular question. And, as we said, the New Testament, in our New Testament survey, we talked about Matthew primarily. This is what we dealt with. We said in those Gospels, we see a transitional book with Matthew that bridged the gap between the Old and New Testaments, as well as revealed the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the other books, Mark, Luke, and John, they, they, they reveal uh, this transition as well. Uh, Matthew probably more than any of them, obviously, but then we also have, like I say, the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, given to us there. And then we found the book of Acts, and I know you can't see it too good in the front here, but we're not going to keep this up very long. But in the book of Acts, we said the most important thing to remember about the book of Acts is that it it is not, it is not, notice, a doctrinal statement of church theology, but a historical account of the Acts of the Apostles. And so we had to be very careful with that one. Again, the book of Acts, just like Matthew, is a transitional book. So Acts continued. Uh, We we talk about Acts again. We said that this is a historical account documenting the transition of some things. We said, number one, the, the transition from law to grace or the Jewish Old Testament structure to the New Testament church age where Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. Notice the sign, change ahead. There's a lot of change going on in the book of Acts, and it sometimes can be misunderstood and it can cause great confusion. But nonetheless, we see this transition from law to grace and from the Old Testament to the New Testament church age. And so <clears throat> we then notice that God, uh, the transition from God dealing with a nation to God dealing with individuals. He deals with a nation, Israel, through the Old Testament and nations as a whole. And then he turns around the New Testament. We're going to see he begins to deal with individuals. That's how he deals primarily now. And so we saw that transition as well. Then we said that we see in the book of Acts also the transition from God dealing primarily with Jews to primarily dealing with Gentiles. And that, of course, is a very important transition. And so we noted that and we took the time to consider it and talk about it. Also, we said that there was a transition between Peter's ministry to the Jews in chapters 1 through 12 and Paul's ministry to the Gentiles in chapter 13 through 28. And so there again, there was this transition. We see the book of Acts broken almost in half, and we can see that the first section of it, the first portion of it, seems to be uh, focusing primarily on Peter and his ministry to the Jew, where the second portion of it has to do primarily with Paul and his portion to the Gentile. And so we noted those things. Now today as we begin, we're going to start working on the Pauline epistles. This group of books, as we said here, is addressed to churches. You'll notice that a lot of them are addressed to churches. And it comes immediately after the book, uh, which, you know, uh, which takes you from the nation of Israel to the church. How, 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 uh, 
interesting is that and, and how coincidental. It's not really a coincidence. I think God intended that. But anyway, we see the nation of Israel to the church transition taking place in the book of Acts, then Judah the Gentile in the book of Acts, and all of a sudden now we have these books that are labeled, written to the church, churches. That, that's kind of neat, you know. We said that the books of the Bible uh, kind of give us an idea or teach us things along the way, and we're going to see now as we move ahead here in our, our lessons that they do make a big difference. So these books, of course, are Romans. 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. That's the first section of the Pauline epistles. And then there's a second section that deals with 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. We're going to work through those as well today. So anyway, <clears throat> we noted those things as we move ahead. And so we want to pick up where we left off now, and we want to begin with this group of books. Now, again, when you start thinking about or talking about Romans and Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonica, uh, these are all cities. These are all churches and cities even. And so we have churches that are named, specific churches, the church at, the church at, the church at. And so we've gone through these transitional books. We've gone through Matthew, taking us from Old to New Testament. We've gone through the book of Acts, and we've seen how, again, he's gone from working with the Jew to the, to the uh, Gentile. We see he's gone from the from uh, Israel to the church. We recognize this transition taking place, all of these things. And now all of a sudden we come to this set of books that is addressed to churches. Now, <clears throat> where do you think then that we should get our church doctrine from? From those books that are directed to the churches. Right? Makes sense, right? Again, it, you notice how it's all set up here. The books are set up. And, and somebody says, well, where should, we, where should we get our doctrine for the church? Well, we see that this book of Matthew is transitional. We see that the book of Acts is transitional. We recognize that there are some things that are changing along the way. All of a sudden, just like that, just like that, we got these books that are listed, directed toward New Testament churches. Makes pretty good sense to me that we ought to get our church doctrine from those books then, primarily. Obviously, there's always things we can learn from every book of the Bible, applications and principles for sure. But if you want to really understand church doctrine, you want to know what the church is supposed to be like and what it's supposed to be accomplishing, what it's supposed to be doing, it seems to me a pretty good idea it would come from these particular books. <clears throat> so <clears throat> this is where we begin to note the order of the books and how they can teach us some spiritual truths. And, and it's kind of interesting how they all kind of fall together. Now, every single problem uh, that the church is going to encounter, every situation... Um, is listed in, in, in these books. It's dealt with. It's addressed in these books that we're talking about now. Uh, Romans, of course, is the most important book of all of them. If you would take the book of Romans, it would be, I guess, um, you could uh, liken it to the book of Genesis in the Old Testament almost. Because the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings, and you find a lot of things that begin. You almost find the seed plot of every uh, major issue in the Bible found in the book of Genesis somewhere, somehow. And you know what? In the book of Romans, if you want to identify church doctrine, you want to know what's going on in the New Testament church, guess what? You run back to Romans, you're going to find everything listed there. It's all found right there. So Romans is a very important book in this series of books. And uh, again, it's the focal point. But every church situation, every type of sin, dealing with every single problem and how to deal with it, how to deal with other believers even, how to deal with relationship issues, and it's all covered. Every one of those things is covered in this, these Pauline epistles. Again, we said first and foremost is the book of Romans. Romans, of course, is the, the greatest book in the Bible on church doctrine. Greatest book of the Bible on church doctrine. The, the problems of a carnal church 
are laid out in 1 Corinthians. We see that situation in the book of Corinthians. The church is identified, it is explained in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And then in First and Second Thessalonians, we're going to see that he talks about the coming of the Lord in relationship to the church, and he covers the end of the church age. And so we're going to see that just very briefly today as well. But as I said again, Romans is where things kind of hinge here on, in these books. And so uh, the rest of the books are going to kind of deal with the same subjects and the same material that have already been addressed and touched on in the book of Romans. And so because of that, I'm going to give you a very brief outline of the book of Romans now. So let's just take our Bible, turn over the book of Romans. And we're going to go through chapter by chapter, not like verse by verse or anything. We're just going to take one simple thought. I'm going to tell you basically what each chapter is. And then I'm going to turn to a verse or so and just take a look at that. So if we're at chapter 1 of Romans, we're going to be able to fly right through these. We don't want to take a lot of time to accomplish these things. Before we start with this, let's have a quick word of prayer. Father, we love you. We need you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Speak to our hearts through this teaching and this, this, this uh, opportunity to glean from your word. Father, we do love you. We thank you for all that you've taught us and everything you do for us. God of heaven, we need you. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. Let me be your mouthpiece. Lord, may I say those things which will please you and encourage your people. Lord God, may you just be with every listening ear that we may hear with spiritual ears and glean and grow. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> now, chapter 1 of the book of Romans. First of all, in Romans chapter 1, <clears throat> God shows how the Gentiles are in a mess because of sin. Take your Bible again, chapter 1, verse 21 through 25. We'll take just a few moments and read just a couple verses. There's, only, there's no way we can capture the whole essence of the chapter, but let us just take a moment and read a few verses of each. Chapter uh, verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into the image made like unto corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and serve the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now again, God shows us how the Gentiles are in a mess because of sin. Chapter 1. Chapter 2 teaches the, that, the, the Jews, that the Jews are, the, are in the same mess that we're in as Gentiles. Jews are in the same mess. Romans 2 verse 11. For there is no respecter of persons with God. Automatically, God makes it clear everybody's on the same plane with God. So there you go. And secondly, notice at verse uh, 25 here, <clears throat> it goes on to say, <clears throat> excuse me, it says, for the, um, for the circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. The bottom line is, again, is that the Jew is in the same predicament because of sin that the Gentile is. Romans 2 begins to explain that and teaches us that. Romans chapter 3. It goes into detail describing how the Old Testament law and the following of your conscience. Jiminy Cricket wasn't right. Okay, he's a good guy. I like little crickets, you know, and they're, they're kind of cool. But Jiminy Cricket, he really, you know, follow your guide, you know, let your conscience be your guide. You end up in a real mess according to Romans chapter 3. You run a real mess if you follow your conscience all the time. You can have a seared conscience. So it goes into detail describing how that Old Testament law and the following of your conscience won't solve the mess of the Jews and the Gentiles 
according to chapter 1 and 2, the mess we're in, the sin mess. It's not going to fix it. It's not going to fix it. That Old Testament law, nor your conscience and following your conscience, will never address or correct the problem of chapter 1 and 2 of sin in our life. So we see that. Notice Romans chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. For what if some did not believe? Oh, they've got a clear conscience. They don't believe there's a God. I don't have a problem. I sleep good at night. Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome them, uh, overcome when thou art judged. It doesn't matter what you think or how you feel. It matters what God says. You say, well, I'm okay with what I'm doing. I have no problem with it. I don't, it doesn't bother me a bit. I have a clear conscience. Only problem is you're going to answer to God. It doesn't matter what you think. So your conscience isn't the solution. A clear conscience isn't the answer. Don't follow your conscience. Follow God's Word. <clears throat> now, so we see Romans chapter 3. Romans 4 and 5, they kind of go together. They deal uh, w- with, with God's answer to this uh, issue of sin. And, and, and then it goes on to tell us why that's the right answer. He tells us why being justified by faith is the answer and not other things that men and women are putting their trust in or trying to do. Okay, because, you know, we're always trying to do something to deal with our sin. But no, justification is the key. Being justified is the real solution to the problem, according to Romans chapter 4 and 5. Notice Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He's the father of faith, remember? Remember, he's father of faith. So then we are children of Abraham by faith, spiritual children. Okay, now again, we're dealing with this issue of sin, and he's saying being justified is the only thing that will make the difference. The law is not going to fix you. It's not going to work it out. Being a good person is not enough. Chapter 5, verse 1 goes on to say, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way we find true peace with God is through the justification that is found in Christ by faith. Now, we go on in chapters 6 through 8, and that's going to deal with a number of aspects of the Christian being dead. You're going to die to self, die to sin in chapters 4 through 6. We're dead in Christ, chapters 6 through 8. And he deals with that death. And, of course, uh, we're talking about a spiritual death, of course. We don't literally go up and hang on a cross like Jesus did, but we do die with Christ. So we're, there, there's a death that takes place as a result of our faith. And in Romans 6, he deals with the Christian's death in relationship to sin itself. Notice chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. 6 deals with a Christian's death in relation to sin. And we note that in verses 11 through 13. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Again, Romans 6 deals with a Christian's death in relationship to sin. Romans chapter 7 covers the Christian's death in relationship to the Old Testament law now. And we see that in chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. Let's just note a couple of those verses. Wherefore, my brethren... Ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, 
that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Again, seven covers the Christian's death in relationship to the Old Testament law. Chapter 8. Chapter 8 deals with the death of the Christian in relationship to the future life that we're going to have. And also the redemption of the body. We're going to have a new body. And so we see that as well. And um, chapter 8, verse 22, a tremendous uh, passage. It says, <clears throat> chapter 8, verse 22, excuse me, for we know that the world, um, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Not only they, but ourselves also, which had the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to with the redemption of our body. We died with Christ. As a result of that, we have these promises. Wonderful promises, chapter 8. And so, then we go on to chapters 9 through 11. And we're going to see that the Apostle Paul is going to devote these next three chapters to uh, dealing with the Jew. Because, see, one of the problems is, is that sometimes we forget that God is not finished with the Jew yet. You know, if we're not careful, we say, well, they hung Christ on the cross. He, he put them on the back burner. They're done with. And he, he brought us into the picture. Well, all of that is true to some degree, but God is not done with Israel yet. He's not finished with them. Matter of fact, you know, we have to be careful that we never forget that those are still His chosen people. And uh, matter of fact, in Roman, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, uh, the Bible blasts a group of people who said they were Jews when they weren't. What it's basically saying is, is they, they, uh, they took the promises that belonged to Israel and they started saying, we take the place of the Israelite, the Jew now. We are the Jew. So his promises, the promises that God gave to the Jew, he now gives to us. And the Bible in the book of Revelation says, listen, I don't appreciate that. I don't like it a bit. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 3.9, he says, behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews. They're part of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not. You got to be real careful. We're not going to, we cannot appropriate the, the, the promises that are to Israel and say, well, God got rid of Israel. Now he's lifted up the church and we've taken Israel's place. We will never take Israel's place. Never. We're the church. They're Israel. And God's still going to deal with them. And God still has a plan for them and a purpose for them and a future for them. Again, a common false teaching, again, is that those Old Testament promises belong to the New Testament church. And, of course, we see some churches in the New Testament, or in our day and age, trying to somehow recapture that idea of taking over the world and ruling and reigning and having a, a, a seat or an authority and then being able to dictate and, 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 and rule. Well, that, that's just not, that's Old Testament. That has nothing to do with us. Ours is a spiritual kingdom, as we noted, not a physical kingdom. As of 606 B.C., when Israel went into captivity, we saw that the kingdom of heaven went out. And then there was no kingdom on earth till Christ himself showed up, who was the head of both kingdoms, bringing both there. Then he offered the kingdom of heaven back to the children of Israel, as we noted in the book of Matthew and in the book of Acts. And with three strikes, they struck out. 
One, John the Baptist. They killed him. Two, Jesus Christ. They killed him. Three, Stephen. They killed him. And with the third strike, the kingdom of heaven went out again, and all that's left on earth is the kingdom of God, as we noted. And the kingdom of God reigns in us, through Christ in us. And so, we need to be very careful with that. So, Romans 9, Paul gives an explanation of God's dealing with Israel. He gives an explanation of God's dealing with Israel. Look at Romans chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. Who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises? Whose are the fathers? And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Now, again, he's giving some explanations. Who is this Israel? Dealing with Israel. What are they? That kind of thing. Romans chapter 10. Paul shows how, even though God started out dealing with the Jew, however, he's also called the Gentiles to become one together in Christ. Now, that's the mystery that the Apostle Paul reveals. God reveals this mystery through the Apostle Paul. It was a mystery. Old Testament saints did not see it. It was not foretold in the Old Testament. They didn't see it. As a result, it confused them. That's why there's such a tremendous transition taking place in the book of Acts. Because nobody knew about it. Had not been foretold even. And now all of a sudden you have a Jew preaching the gospel and Peter going to Cornelius and saying, Wow, guys, listen. Not only did these guys receive the gift of the Holy Ghost without being baptized, but also they're Gentiles. They're getting them like we're getting them. How's this possible? That's what everybody was asking him. And he's saying, all I know is they had to give the Holy Ghost, so they obviously got what we got. So they must be included. No changes. You know, everybody included. No changes. And then we see the transition just really taking off and taking shape and form. And, and we noted that starting in chapter 8, really, moving right on through till eventually Peter, the apostle in chapter 12, goes off the scene. And Paul, the, the apostle to the Gentile, comes on in chapter 13. Now, chapter 10, we said uh, we, that Paul shows that this whole thing comes together, that there's Jew and Gentile in Christ. You know the passages, though. I mean, chapter 10 is probably the greatest chapter in the entire Bible on how to lead someone to Christ. You know, Romans chapter 10. We, Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Drop down to ten thirteen. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We see such tremendous passages in the book of Romans chapter 10 that help lead people to Jesus Christ. Then Romans 11 shows up. And Romans chapter 11 is a wonderful and very interesting passage. As a matter of fact, Without doubt, it's the greatest chapter in the New Testament on the restoration of the nation of Israel. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Dealing with the nation of Israel and its restoration. Romans chapter 11. Again, we said 9 through 11, Paul was going to help us understand that God's not done with his people, the Jews, yet. And so in chapter 11, he really nails it as we've come to the end of that portion of scriptures. And uh, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, he says, I say then... Hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God had not cast away his people, which he foreknew. That's something. 
Yeah, listen, through every age, there's been people trying to say, you know what, God's done with you Jews. It's all on us Gentiles now. And he said, no, 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 no. God's not done with the Jew yet. That's why the missionary that we had, Brother Way, that was here not too long ago, how impressive his presentation was and how he dealt with that issue. And he was so adamant about the fact that, you know, the Jew's still relevant, still important, still very practical in our day and age. The Jewish people, Israel, important. Let's not cast them off as a nation. Let's not attack them. Let's not go after them. Let's be careful because, you know, you bless them to bless you and curse them to curse you. Hey, listen, he's not done with them yet. Let's not get on the bad side of God here. Let's be very careful when we deal with the Jew. He's not finished with them yet. Now, again, he's changed his focus. He's not primarily ministering to the Jew now. He's primarily ministering to the Gentile. However, he is not cast off his people forever. He's going to pick right back up again once the tribulation kicks off. Actually, he's already picking up with it now. But when the tribulation kicks off, it'll be the Jew again that's emphasized and focused on. Now, notice chapter 12. In chapter 12 of Romans, that deals with the Christian's relationship to other people, whether they're saved, whether they're lost. And it has to do with our relationship to others in, in, in relationship to being a living sacrifice. You know, the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we see that our relationship to others is dependent on this surrendering, this, uh, uh, this yieldedness, and... Um, this sacrifice that we make unto the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we present ourselves to Christ, it affects our relationship to others, both saved and lost. And so it deals with that relationship. Romans chapter 13. This, of course, covers the Christian's relationship to government. To government. And we see that in in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, when it begins, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, The powers that be are ordained of God. So he kicks right off in Romans chapter 13, dealing with the Christian's relationship to government. Now now, now listen, this is the chapter that if you want to understand why you should be paying your taxes and not cheating the government, there it is, right there. Chapter 13, okay? Listen, you know, we can say whatever we want. They don't deserve it. They're not worthy of my money. I would agree with a lot of those things. However, here's the problem. It doesn't matter how it is. Let me ask you this. When Israel went into captivity to the Babylonians and God said, you pray for the prosperity of the Babylonians because in their prosperity, you will prosper too. They're ripping them right out of their families. They're taking them right out of their land. And God's saying, don't you fight them. Matter of fact, you submit to them. We got a government that's not even remotely close to that. Oh, we, we still have tremendous freedoms in America. We better be careful we don't keep letting them go. But we have tremendous freedoms in America. The truth is, though, is that we better support the government as it's outlined here in the, in the, in the Word of God. We've got to be careful because what we do is every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Got to be careful with that. So we see that in Romans, it addresses this issue. Why? Because God knew that in every age there's going to be somebody that's going to say, you know, here, we're taking some taxes from you. <laughs> And you're going to go, we're not taking no taxes, taxation without representation. All that, you know, you know what I'm saying in a sense. But the fact is, is that we're in a government. And this government that we have is there for our protection, he claims. God says it, not me. You've got to obey them that have the rule over you. Say, I don't like that. Well, as men, you sure like it when your wife obeys that rule. 
even when you don't deserve it. But then when it comes to our government, we'll say, I don't have to submit to them. They're not acting or treating me right. Wife, you better submit to me. God says you ought to. You have to. Well, first of all, you shouldn't have to say that if you're really in charge. And second of all, if the shoe, fit, if, if the shoe fits, wear it. It applies to us too. Let's pay our taxes. Let's, let's obey our, our government. Let's do the speed limit. <coughs> Move on. <coughs> Romans chapter 14 and 15. We've got to get past that one, okay? I know some of you would be throwing shoes at me here in a minute. Romans chapter 14 through 15 deals with a Christian's relationship to other Christians now. Deals with a Christian's relationship to other Christians. Notice Romans 15, verses 1 through 3. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. Again, he's dealing with the Christian's relationship to other Christians there. And, and we see that there in chapters 14 and 15. And then finally in Romans 16, we see the letter being closed by the Apostle Paul. And uh, I just picked the last verse. Of, just said, to God, only wise, to, to God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. So we, we see here the, the book of Romans. Man, it covers so many topics, so many things. As a believer, it addresses issue after issue after issue. And um, Romans is set up in a way that it's going to define all these doctrines. It's going to begin to outline these doctrines. Because right on the heels of Romans is one of the biggest disasters in church history. Now again, I'm not, I don't know. We might compare pretty good to it. But you get to First and Second Corinthians, the church is in a huge mess. I mean a big mess here. And I, I want to look at 1 Corinthians again for just a moment. I want to consider it. But you've you got to be careful with Corinthians, okay? You, you, you can't base church doctrine out of the book of 1 Corinthians. You, you, you just got, you got to, you can't do that. And you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just said that these books that are named after churches that Paul wrote, these Pauline epistles are, are written to us and they're for us. So why can't we take church doctrine? Well, before you go that far, let me just say, yeah, you're correct, but 1 Corinthians is a book that teaches us what not to do. Not what to do. You know that you can't find one chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul doesn't get on them or chew them out for something? You realize that? And, and again, I'm not trying, I'm just we're trying, doing an overview here, but... But, you know, in the book of Corinthians, in chapter 1, they're arguing over who baptized who. In chapter 2, Paul's going to chew them out because they're acting like unsaved people. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Don't you realize, if you're saved, God should be able to speak to your heart? If you're not saved, God can't speak to your heart. Don't you realize it? Don't you get it, guys? In chapter 3, they're arguing about who won who to Christ. Who led you to Christ? Well, Paul led me to Christ. Paul's led me to Christ. I mean, they're having this battle. They're, they're, they're at each other's throats in chapter 3 of the book of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 4, they're, 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 they're not being faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. In chapter 5, there's fornication going around, taking place. There's all kind of a mess there, sin abounding there. In chapter 6, they're taking each other to court over legal matters, which could have been taken care of, should have been taken care of within the context of the church. 
I mean, before it's over with, Paul's telling them, wait a second, guys, don't you realize that you're going to judge the world one day, and yet you can't find one person wise enough to judge between you and the people within the context of the church? Are you kidding me? You're going to judge the world. You're going to rule the world. You can't even judge between yourselves in these insignificant, ridiculous matters virtually in retrospect. I mean, if you can't, can't deal with it. This is amazing. So you take it to the world to decide instead of dealing with it within the church. So we see him getting on them about those things. Chapter 7, we see they were messed up on the concept of marriage. He has to try to identify. He starts to outline it again. He's trying to, trying to help them with that whole issue. You've got to understand the Corinthian church came out of a very wicked culture and a horrible background. In chapter 8, they're messed up on meat offered to idols. Chapter 9, they're messed up on the liberty, their liberty in Christ. You know, liberty, oh, it sounds a little bit like our churches today, doesn't it? Our liberty in Christ. What's our rights? Our rights as believers. I, I, I don't think Jesus expressed a whole lot of rights, did he? But it seems that Christianity today wants a bunch of rights. I want a right to be able to go social drink if I want a social drink. I want the right to be able to dress like I want to dress, act like I want to act, do what I want to do, go where I want to go, be with who I want to be with. I don't want anybody judging me. I don't want anybody putting any expectations on me. I'm a Christian. I have liberty. That's the mentality that seems to be permeating our churches and, and our, our, our Christian lives today. And, and we got to be careful with that because they were messed up on that issue too. And Paul had to put things in perspective. In chapter 10, he goes back and he gives them some Old Testament examples. He's trying to straighten them out. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, we read, Now all these things happened unto them, talking about Old Testament, for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. He says, now I'm going to show you some things in chapter 10. He begins to talk about Israel and he says, these guys followed after idolatry. Can't you learn from them? Don't you realize that we're just like they were? We're following in their same footsteps. Learn from history. Don't just pass it over. In 1 Corinthians 11, they're messed up on, the women's, on a woman's role and on the Lord's Supper. In chapter 12, they're messed up on spiritual gifts. Chapter 13, it's on charity. They're all messed up. Chapter 14, they're messed up on tongues. Chapter 15, they're, they're all upset, messed up on the resurrection. I mean, all these things are happening in the church at Corinth. And then if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we run to the book of Corinthians and say, boy, I'm looking at tongues here. I think we can create a doctrine. If we just go ahead and do it the way they did, it will be all right. What? He's correcting them. He's trying to put them in perspective. He's trying to help them understand that that thing is gone. It's not needed now. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. There's all kinds of things taking place in the church at Corinth. Chapter 16, they're all messed up on the collection for the saints. What was the problem with the collection for the saints? They weren't giving. <laughs> they weren't giving. Paul says, we've got to get this thing fixed and straightened out. So the, the church at Corinth, they were a messed up bunch. They, they, they had things all mixed up. So if you try to take and create positive doctrine out of the book of 1 Corinthians, a very negative book, you're going to end up in trouble. You've got to be careful. You can't do that. Can I learn from the book of Corinthians? Absolutely. Let's face it. We can learn from anyone or anything, 
You say, how do you do that? Well, you can learn by, from some what not to do, and you learn from others what to do. The book of Corinthians is a book in which we learn what not to do as a church. And yet, in reading it, understanding it, gleaning from it, we can grow from it, without a doubt. No doubt about that. But we don't want to create church doctrine out of it. We want to support our church doctrines out of it. Because Romans and other books are so strong in certain areas, we just take that book and we say, hmm, that, that, see Paul's saying that over there in Corinthians? Man, it lines up perfectly with what he establishes in these books. Okay, it's, it's not the book we use to set the standard. Then we arrive at Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And these next books in this section deal with the inner structure of the church. Actually, the structure of the church itself. Galatians, the book of Galatians deals with justification by faith. It talks about how a man is kept saved and by the power of God, not by works. So, so Galatians is a great book. Again, it deals with, it deals with this issue of, of justification by faith. Man's not saved by his works. He's not saved. He's saved by the power of God. He's kept by the power of God. And that's a wonderful thing. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. We read there. Galatians 3, 1 through 3. It simply says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth, wherefore whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you, This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? We see the book of Galatians addresses this issue. Were you saved by faith, grace through faith? Yeah. Then how's come you're trying to keep it by living a certain life? How's come you're putting the emphasis of of salvation on the works then? You started this way. Why don't you finish the same way? You started by faith and grace. Why don't you continue that way? Is it spirit or is it flesh? What is it? Well, they started the right way, but they started to stray and move away. The Judaizers got in there and mixed them all up and started saying, boy, by the way, you have to be circumcised. By the way, you have to do this if you want to really go to heaven. Oh, we didn't know that. You know why you didn't know it? You know why Paul didn't tell you that? (laughs) Because you don't have to. You don't have to. <clears throat> There's a big mess in chapter 15 of Acts over all of it. But anyway, we, we go into that, that's a whole other issue. But in Ephesians, the church is defined. What should a Christian church look like? That's the kind of question that's being answered in the book of Ephesians. What should a Christian church look like? And um, <clears throat> so we, we note that in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, we see there, verse 19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. What's the Christian life? or excuse me, the Christian church look like? In Ephesians, we begin to see that, and he begins to outline those things for us and helps us with them. In Philippians, Paul covers this aspect of rejoicing in the Lord, regardless of our circumstances or our state. Rejoice in the Lord. And he gives us some practical application of the New Testament church age truths in our lives, everyday things that are going on. He helps us to see the application 
And we think of Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. He says things like in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, not that I speak in respect of one, for I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I mean, those kind of issues are being addressed in the book of Philippians. So if you're ever having a rough time in your life and you're struggling to express joy or to, to experience joy, read Philippians. Because there are people in the book of Philippians that are going through horrible circumstances. They're being persecuted. They're, they're having difficult times. And yet he's saying, listen, you've got to learn how to be content. You've got to learn how to have joy. You've got, you have to be able to get a hold of God and find this joy. So he addresses those issues. Colossians covers a number of the same issues that Ephesians and, 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 and Philippians, well, actually Ephesians and Romans more than anything. It covers those same types of principles in the book of Colossians again kind of rehashes them a little bit, kind of drives home those truths even to a greater degree. Chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Colossians is going to drive home some truths that have already been expressed in the book of Ephesians and the book of Romans more than any. And so he's going to drive those home. And so we see these books, and we see things starting to take shape. And so as we move ahead in our, our studies in New Testament, we, we see that we had the book of Matthew, which brought us from the Old to the New Testament. I'm going I'm to pop this on here real quick because I'm going to end here, and I'm going to just have to pick up later. But notice this here. <clears throat> um, Matthew took us from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And um, again, these are transitional books. From Matthew, we go from Old to New Testament, but then there's this transition that takes place because the kingdom of heaven is still being sought. And the question that we read in chapter 1, verse 6 of Acts is that pivotal verse. It it sets the stage for the entire book of Acts as well as the New Testament because ultimately, when are you going to establish your kingdom? You ready to do that, Lord? We're waiting on you. And he says, whoa, 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 let's hold on because we're still waiting to see how Israel's going to respond. Because if Israel accepts the kingdom, Israel accepts my prophet, Israel takes the Lord and recognizes him as Messiah, then okay, we'll get this thing kicked off, we'll get things moving along, the 70th week of Daniel will start and all things will move ahead. Unfortunately, we know that's not how it turned out. So we have Matthew, then we have Acts. In the book of Acts, because they rejected the kingdom and rejected Christ as Messiah, ultimately God says, okay, you Jews, uh, the Jews, Israel, we're done with you. I'm putting you on the back burner for now. I'm going to go ahead, according to the book of Romans again, you can read it there in chapters 9 through 11. He sets them in the back and he begins to move forward and deal with the Gentile. And so we see that transition taking place. We see it in Acts chapter uh, 8. We noted that uh, there they're scattered abroad because of persecution. The gospel begins to go everywhere. We see Philip. Now he's down there in Samaria, half Jew, half Gentile. He's ministering to them. Before the gospel went solely to Jews. Jerusalem was a church that was built on Jewish believers. There was no Gentile faith at all. All of a sudden, they're being scattered abroad. Philip's running out here to, the, to, to um, Samaria. And they're the half Jew, half Gentiles being saved. And then all of a sudden we see him on the backside of the desert, running into desert, running into a uh, Ethiopian eunuch. And that Ethiopian eunuch now he he's going to say, "What doth hinder me to be baptized?" He's the first man in the New Testament that we see being saved and then being baptized as we understand our salvation. And then all of a sudden, Paul the apostle in chapter nine of the book of Acts, he comes to Christ, and we have the apostle to the Gentile now. Here he is transitioning again. We see this transition. 
And so Apostle Paul kind of goes underground for a little bit, ends up just uh, kind of learning and growing, while Peter steps in in chapter 10 dealing with Cornelius. He has the keys to the kingdom. He's unlocking them. Man, I'm telling you, we're going from the Jew now. He's unlocking the kingdom to the Gentiles. And so all of a sudden now, we have the uh, Gentiles being dressed and dealt with in the New Testament. Paul pops back up on the scene again, and next thing you know, he takes over, Peter disappears, and boom, we're out ministering around the world and around the globe to the Gentile, taking the gospel to everyone. We see them going back to answering to Jerusalem. We see them going back to Antioch. You know, what's going on? We're reporting back and forth. But in the end, what we're going to see is that all of a sudden, they're first called Christians in Antioch. And so now all of a sudden, we've made the transition now from the book of uh, uh, the Old Testament to the New Testament. We've made the transition from the Jew to the Gentile and before it's over with. And, and we're just going to have to continue with this next week. We're going to see in the book of Hebrews, another book of transition. We're going to go from the church to the tribulation. And so we're going to note another transitional book. And another very, very difficult book to address if you don't understand there's a transition taking place and you have to keep your eyes open because God's going to be moving from the church to the tribulation where he's dealing with Hebrews. And those are none other than Jews. Okay? So we're going to see how the books all fall into place. Anyway, that's kind of everything. We just kind of, in a nutshell, put it together. But that book of Romans is a key book in the New Testament for the church, mind you. The most important book to the church because it addresses every major issue. Corinthians, be careful with. As you read through it, you'll note that they're just messing up by the numbers. And Paul's addressing those things and trying to help that church. And by the way, we don't have it all right either, do we? Boy, we need help too. Let's be careful that we take the time to dig into the Word of God so that we can get the instruction and the admonition and the correction that we need too as a church. That we don't go off on our own failing to see what Christ has intended for us. Well, today, tonight, um, I don't really know where to take this exactly for an invitation. But what I do know is this. We have a mighty God and an amazing book in front of us. An amazing book. And God has put it together in a way that even the, the, the order of the books can be helpful. And they begin to help us understand even doctrine and where things fall in the New Testament. So with that said, maybe God spoke to you about something tonight. I don't know. You know His Holy Spirit's much more capable and qualified to just to, to dig into your heart and to identify areas of need. Or maybe there's a loved one, a friend, or some family member that needs prayer tonight. Maybe there's a lost family member. Maybe there's somebody that you know that's sick and ill tonight. Maybe you just need to pray for them tonight. Whatever God puts on your heart tonight, let's just take a few moments and see what God would have done in this place tonight as our music comes, as we play, and as we have invitation. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed and every eye closed today as we pray. Father, help us now in these next few moments. Lord, we understand, Lord, that this was primarily a teaching lesson. But, Lord, there is an element here where, Lord, we as believers need to understand how infinite you are, how mighty you are. And, Lord, if, if you knew so far in advance what we were going to need today, there's no doubt that, Father, we can trust you with our lives today.